Garrett McQueen. And I'm Scott Blankenship. <laughs> and this is Triloquy, true and real stories from the fringes of classical music. Sounded like you were trying to mock me there a little bit. Just a little bit. You're fresh back from vacation and you're feeling a little, feeling a little, uh, Spunky. <laughs> I'm feeling. Uh, I'm. I'm feeling conflicted because I'm ready to get back into it and you know sink my teeth in and. Uh, but at the same time, it was hard responding to that alarm this morning rather sure than just getting up whenever you're ready to get up for two weeks. I'm sure it was. Mm. So through the magic of working in advance and really driving ourselves crazy, we were able to uh, keep up with uh, with our triloquy opuses coming out uh, each week while on vacation. I took a week-long vacation. You took two weeks off. Mm-hmm. Where? How, how did you spend that time? The first thing was uh, one of my oldest friends, Scott Working, and I went to uh, visit another friend of his that lives in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Madison. And we went to Kaganza State Park, which is about 20, 25 minutes outside of Madison. We were there for three days, and uh, what an amazing little park. Every night we were in this camp area that was like a like just carved out of the trees, and every night we were surrounded by fireflies. It was wow. like being just in a curtain of twinkling lights owls calling back and forth to one another and uh and then on the last day of the vacation the last night actually we heard the madison chamber orchestra play on the steps of the state capitol gave a great concert with a prokofiev piano concerto with a local soloist and tchaikovsky's francesca de rimini and la valse was the program that prokofiev piano concerto isn't one that i would imagine on a uh, summer outdoor concert. It seems a little spiky for for some listeners, but I'm going to be honest with you. Go ahead. It was really just an occasion to sit outside with an open container with a bunch of other people. Sure, sure. Well, know. that's just fine. That's how they did it back in the old days. When you talk about Mozart opera and all that sort of thing, they were there drinking, having dinner. You know, sometimes they would close the curtains to um, <laughs> get a little romantic. <laughs> I'll, I'll say, you know, the uh. the opera was sort of the the side show and. You know, while I do enjoy the fact that opera and other live performances aren't sort of treated as background music or wallpaper, it is nice to, you know, have those times to go to the park and yep. have an orchestra and just relax. So glad you had a had a great time. They were tight. Yeah. Yeah. And Madison is a great city. I've never been. I love that little town. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I've always heard of Madison, Wisconsin, but I've never been myself. So I'll have to make the trip sometime. I don't know about camping, but I'll go. (laughs) I'll I'll go with you. I'll go check out the other stuff. Yeah. So while we were both um, out, a piece of classical music journalism uh, was released that caught a lot of people's attention. Um, Mm -hmm. The title of the article is It's Time to Let Classical Music Die, an article by a writer and a composer named Nibal Mesud. Did you get a chance to look at that article? I did, yeah. And the first thing I looked for was the date as to when it was published. Sure. Because I've seen articles with that title published before, Mm -hmm. and I thought, there's nothing new under the sun. They've been saying that classical music is on the way out, that the format is dying, that orchestras are having trouble. They've been been doing that since I was starting out in the the late 80s. Yeah. And then I started reading it, and it's not about that. It was feeling a little real to you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the reason it was a, a poignant article to me um, is because unlike you, Scott, classical music and I have had a relationship my entire life. Mm-hmm. I can't remember, you know, as young as, you know, five years old, I can remember, um, you know, 
school singing lessons and that sort of thing. You know, it, it's always been a part of me. And, you know, I've, I've been pipelined directly to um, uh, this position, it seems, when I, when I think about my professional journey. Mm. So um, can, uh, considering classical music a sort of oppressor, as this writer does, was really interesting to me. Yeah. And, and he likens the relationship a lot with Stockholm Syndrome when it comes to people of color and classical music holding up this uh, genre that is supposed to be better than anything else and, in his words, celebrates European whiteness above all else. I mean, does that seem like an incorrect statement to you, at least that last part? I, I'll be honest, I had to take a few moments and really get into that mindset because I hadn't thought of it that way. Although, you know, over the past several weeks that we've been doing the podcast, some things are coming into the light that I hadn't thought of before. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, though, if you could elaborate a little bit on colonization as it relates to classical music, because that, for me, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what the relationship is. Yeah, I, I thought that was a really interesting part of the article because he's talking about how classical music comes in to um, replace other forms of art and, and, and other bits of uh, musical culture. And, um, you know, I, I, did a, uh, I did an interview uh, earlier this week that, that we'll be hearing on not today's episode of Triloquy, but an upcoming one. And we talk a lot about indigenous people and and how um, you know their their culture was just destroyed and replaced with another one, uh, particularly on the East Coast, and how that applies to the New York area. So uh, when we talk about classical music in general, think about all of the cultural music that comes from America. Think about all of the um, indigenous music, yeah. indigenous American music we yeah. know nothing about, but you know somehow we've learned about Mozart and Beethoven and all those folks, haven't we? You know, right? It's like, is oh, okay. So I was just making sure I understood that correctly because it's like somebody else coming in and going your music really isn't all that great. So here's all this stuff, you know, in the Germanic tradition or the Italian or French or whatever right, it is. Right, right. And then he also talks about, um, you know, uh, people of color and classical music need to understand when they are being tokenized, which... That was my next question. <laughs> which was also very poignant for me because I feel like I understand when I'm being tokenized. And he talks about... Some people are in the position to where their best move is to take advantage of that tokenization and take advantage of the position they've been given to sort of spread and share some of their culture. And that's what I feel like. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to accuse anyone of tokenizing me, um, which is another conversation, but... Uh, I, I have to, I do feel like anyway I've taken advantage of my position by making sure that I talk about black classical music as much as I can and interview as many black professionals and and really just you know stake our claim to this art form and and, and to the space that that I hold here here at uh, at this institution one of the one of the many um, institutions that hold up classical music um, in a very particular kind of way. Yeah, that was uh, my question. So thank you for answering the token question. But, uh, I also wanted to know if you felt like, um, are you making a difference from the inside? I mean, with your position here and you talk about bringing up black classical music as sure. often as you can, do you feel that that is having an impact. I mean, is are people taking notice? I I think so. And and actually, I'll turn that question back around to you uh, in a different way. Think about some of the conversations that we've engaged engaged on this podcast. Had 
in in your what tw- thirteen years here have have they been are are there conversations here that have never been engaged before? Oh yeah, sure. So and think about um uh like what I put together um here at work for Juneteenth. Is that something that's been acknowledged here before? No. Okay. And so so we can go down the list all day. Um, you know, I feel like again my being here, my being in this space, I have the responsibility to bring as much. Um, of my blackness with me as possible. Um, and it's not just about black and white. It, it's about the whole spectrum of music, the, the mm-hmm. world uh, of music that's ignored and how we focused on these sounds and these aesthetics of um, Western Europe. And um, again, the, uh, the, the title of this article, uh, for those of you listening, is called It's Time to Let Classical Music Die. It was written by Nibal Mesoud, who is a writer and also a composer. And we actually have um, a little of his music, if, uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, plugging that in here. And I, I'd, I'd be interested to talk about that a little bit. So a short excerpt there from a tune called Decolonized Arabesques by Nibal Mesoud. So what what are your instant takeaways from that short excerpt? Uh, at first I thought, something's wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, you know, it, it starts off unexpectedly. Okay. Well, choose another word. What's another word other than unexpectedly? How else would you describe those sounds? Uh, attention grabbing. Um, interesting. Sure. And what was it? What was it? So we had some, there was some winds. Yes. Yeah, some winds sound like saxophone in, uh, in multiphonics. So, uh, you know, that's what it sounds like when a, a wind instrument is playing more than one note at the same time, along with, um, some strings and that sort of thing. There's a little piano, a couple keys so all of the ingredients are there all of the classical ingredients are there they're just used um in in a way that uh is not really uh, tantamount to the traditions of western europe and i think that's what this author and, and the composer talks about in this music is that only one type of thing is acceptable and more times than not it mirrors the traditions of Western Europe. It mirrors whiteness in music. Let's be honest. Is that a, a piece of music you would expect to see on one of your playlists? Not at all. Why is that? Because That's a great question. B- because as an institution, we are a part of, of, of that issue, a part of that problem, upholding the status of classical music as just this white thing, both um, conceptually and aesthetically. Okay, but from from my from where I sit anyway. Understood, but at the same time, you have to remember that the whole goal of a radio show is to attract listeners. Sure. Okay, so even the most adventurous listener mm-hmm. might not be enthralled enough with that to listen to the whole piece. You know what I'm saying? There needs to be something to grab for them to grab onto, or to use another cliche, 
they need to be able to touch the bottom of the pool. You know, they need, you know, to get a breath of air or something. I'm not saying that we should go in and play nothing but, you know, Zanakis and and all these other strange composers. But what do you think it would take to get people interested in music that's a little bit harder to listen to on the radio? I think it takes institutions like ours taking a step forward and really showcasing those sorts of sounds and showcasing that type of music. And and I'm also not saying that it has to be, you know, um, very eclectic sounding um, 21st century music all the time because I, I love Mozart just as much as everybody else mm-hmm. okay? uh, and, and all of all of those old white men. But that doesn't mean that we can't engage, you know, the, the other sides, the other corners of classical music as well. And, you know, it's going to take a lot of time. It, it, it's not an overnight thing, but if, you know, once a day, maybe twice a day, something is coming through the airwaves that sounds a little different, I, I think it, it, it might you know, change minds or curve minds a little bit. We, we Here on this podcast, we've said that um, that we have the ability to be tastemakers, right? Yep. And, and, and I think that's important. And I think, you know, just as I find responsibility in making sure I'm bringing in all of me and and uh, and what I think is overlooked culture into the music and into the conversations we have here, you know, I, I think it's all of our responsibility if, if we want there, you know, to to be classical radio and and classical conversations that continue to go. I'm 32 years old. You know, I'm a long way from retirement. I'm hoping that this lasts for at least another 30, 35, 40 years, you know, and I'm not saying that contemporary music is the only way to do that because you can certainly bring in new new listeners with the more traditional sounding uh, things. But, you know, going back uh, to this article and the guy who who wrote it, you know, his point is that we um, we are you know, allowing the whiteness of classical music to prevail, to rule, to be supreme. And and in some people's minds, in a lot of people's minds, that is all classical music is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another point that I wanted to bring up about that article that I think would fit in here, he talked about creating a community. Sure. Now, you're not talking about playing this sort of music just on its own show like you know an hour or two long two hour long show right you're talking about putting it in the regular playlist yeah integrating it if you will for lack of a better word okay so here's (laughs) here's my question uh you know recently there was a an art display there was an art display where uh Black artists were featured in their own space, in their own room. Sure. And there were people coming up and saying, well, wait a minute, why not hang it out here with everybody else? Mm -hmm. Okay, so my question is, um, does creating a community sort of create that environment for musicians? Meaning, like, if if it's going to be a, a people of color orchestra, is that somehow... Uh, going to work against them. Well, first, let me uh, address the the museum issue, and I still haven't. Um, I, I think you're talking about what's over at the MIA over in Minneapolis. Um, I still haven't gone over there to see it, but just like there are um, areas and rooms dedicated to um, Edo period um, Japan, yeah, or or you know Celtic art or or, or whatever, I don't think there's anything wrong with a, a section dedicated to Afro American art. Now, 
if it feels like the art isn't fully integrated into the culture of the museum and and what's there, that's another thing. But I I don't think there's anything wrong with that separation as long as the separation is, you know, equal to to the the separation of the other art. Now, if we're uh, just generally talking about American Impressionism or or American whatever, you know, the black art needs to be in that room, just like in the same way if we're if we're uh, doing American music for um, quote unquote Independence Day or or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. The black music needs to be in, involved with that, too. Right. Because that that is as American. I agree. Uh, now, when you talk about a community of people um, trying to, you know, dismantle some of the uh, stereotypes and, 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 you know, how classical music has been built up and sustained by these institutions. I think communities like those are very important. You know, my, um, my personal network of um, classical musicians of color and, and um, not just, you know, performing musicians, but people in the administrative offices or whatever, you know, that network has been very important to me. I've tapped into that network for uh, most of the Triloquy interviews so far, you know, and and where else are those conversations going to happen? I think that's the other point um, on that topic he's making in this article is that the conversation hasn't happened in the in the well-established classical music institutions. So we have to build communities to make those conversations happen and in turn, you know, change minds and and sort and sort of shift some of the traditions surrounding classical music. Like like we've already acknowledged here, there wasn't a Juneteenth special before uh, Garrett McQueen, uh, among many other things. Um, he's saying people of color can't wait for non people of color to engage some of this stuff. And quite frankly, I think that's a fair statement. Sure. I think that's a fair assessment. And and you don't think that there's a risk of getting labeled or pigeonholed by having an, uh, a, an orchestra made up of, of people of color doing music by people of color? You don't think that there's a risk of, of, of being stereotyped for them? Well, I think... That has a lot to do with how people view um, the idea of validation from the outside. So if I was a part of a yeah. if I was a part of a all black classical uh, music uh, institution that you know was able to you know pay me to live and 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 X Y and Z, what would it matter to me what other people from the outside thought of that? That that sounds like you know, a dream to me. I, I love working here, but, you know, I, I can't be concerned about that sort of thing. And I couldn't be concerned about that sort of thing if I've found myself in that sort of institution. I mean, do I No, I was mainly just concerned about the prospect of a group like that falling into the niche category. Oh, I see. Well, is classical music not niche in itself in today's society? You're I mean, asking I'm not to me. <laughs> you know, not to me either, but but if you step back and and look at the big picture, you know, you have to you have to take a look at that. And again, why is classical music so niche? Why why do why do so few people know how to engage it? Cuz then there's a niche niche. But right, right, because <laughs> it because it doesn't speak to them. So, I think all he's trying to say I don't think he's saying we need to let classical music die, period. I think he's saying that we need to let um, a lot of the stereotypes and a lot of the okay. ideas surrounding it die. Fair but, enough. But in doing that, you know, there are certain realizations that we need to come to, one of which being it's not just the Western Europeans who wrote instrumental music worth listening to and worth um, programming 
for um, orchestral seasons, worth programming for radio shows and, and, and X, Y, and Z else, everything else in between. Very poignant article. I enjoyed it. My last question regarding the article on something else he wrote about is, what do you think a post-classical world might look like? That's one of the questions he posed. Yeah, that, and that's a really interesting question. For me, again, it it ties to how we define that word classical. So there will always be instrumental music because there always has been, you know, even on, you know, the the best hip hop tracks have An instrumental music feel. in yeah. it. E- even if it's not, you know, real quote unquote instruments, the, the idea of it is there. So a, a, a world where classical music can sit beside the others um, as equals. I, I think that's a very equitable sounding world to me. I love the idea of going to a concert hall um, on a Thursday and hearing a Beethoven, going to that same concert hall on Friday and hearing Beyonce, and then coming back on Saturday and hearing uh, Billy Porter or you know some something on the jazz side or whatever. Mm-hmm. We we need to um, classical music institutions, in his opinion, and also in my opinion to an extent, need to embrace genres of music not always considered quote unquote classical because um, it, it's all music that's worthwhile and much of it is music that comes from um, similar origins. Uh, but before we move on from this, I'll, I'll just mention um, there's a woman um, not. Boulanger, she taught many of the world's oh, yeah. great composers. You know, one of her students was Quincy Jones, and he, and he didn't go on to cool. uh, to compose symphonies and that sort of thing, but he helped create, you know, some of the world's other most important music, you know, much of Michael Jackson's catalog and, yeah. and many uh, movie soundtracks. One of them I included in that um, Juneteenth feature, I think it was the uh, soundtrack to um, The Color Purple, uh, actually. Such great music. Um but but anyway, a very poignant article. Um, again, I encourage everyone to go take a look at this with an open mind. The name of the article is It's Time to Let Classical Music Die. If you just Google that phrase, you'll find it. A uh, June 24th um, uh, uh, piece by Nebel Mesoud, who was also a composer. You heard a little bit of his music. And... Uh, yeah, that's that. That's a little of what happened while you were away on on vacation. But this also <laughs> this also relates to your guest for today, your interview for today. Talk about Katie. Yeah, it does. So um, you took a two week vacation. I took a one week vacation, sort of. I was still working. I went down to Fayetteville, Arkansas, uh, to play contra bassoon with the Artisphere Festival Orchestra. Um, a really fun time. And, you know, uh, but before I, I touch on, uh, before we get to Katie and her interview, I'll, uh, I'll tell a quick story. So um, during the first concert on the program was Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto and um, Brahms Three, Brahms Third Symphony. And I'm sitting there playing this music, listening to this music, and it comes concert day, and I'm looking out in the audience, and I'm like, wow, am I really speaking to the people I want to speak to? Am I really engaging and enriching um, the the culture of people that, that, that I want to reach out to? And when I looked out in that audience and didn't see a single black face, a single face that didn't look like mine, the answer was no. And I found myself in this sort of funk like, wow, maybe it is time for me to just completely leave this, leave the stage because this just is not it. So um, we get to the end of uh, that first performance um, and and I, I don't know if you know how familiar you are with just sort of the um, 
the traditions of symphony orchestras. You know, at the end of a concert, the conductor might, you know, call out a few of the soloists to stand or whatever mm -hmm. or or sections. So, you know, first he asked for the entire orchestra to stand. He left the stage. He came back. He asked, um, so he went from back to front. He asked for the percussion to stand so they could get their bow, then the brass, um, and then uh, the woodwinds. And because we're up on risers, without the strings in front of me standing up, I can see more of the audience. So I stand up, and um, there's this black guy, maybe three or four rows back, doing everything he can to grab my attention, like moving his face and all that stuff. And when I finally do lock eyes with him, he holds up this black power fist. <laughs> and boy, you laugh, but I almost started to cry because in that moment for me, I was like, wow, there is somebody in this audience that I can speak to and who is who is recognizing that um, that desire to be spoken to, you know, because it would be one thing for him to just see me and, and whatever. But, you know, he fully acknowledged our blackness in that moment, in that space. And that was incredible to me. And I was like, wow, the only black person in this audience is uh, is is really paying attention. And then the next day, um, I'm, you know, walking around town, probably getting a coffee or something. And uh, this car passes by, screeches to a halt and goes into reverse. So I'm like, here we go, I'm gonna have to fight somebody out here because that's usually how all that starts. And um, and this black <laughs> woman sticks her head out the car window and goes, hey, hey, you play bassoon? And I was like, uh, yeah. And she was like, I went to the concert last night, you sounded great, and it was really great to see you on stage. So I guess there were two people there at, at yeah. least. Um, Anyway. No, I, I laughed because I, I thought that was a victory, yeah. you know, that you... In that, a way, yeah. And and if we're doing this one person at a time, there's your one person for that concert. Yeah, I would love to do a, a much more than one person at a time. But We would all love to do yeah, that. But 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 it was really great um, seeing him. And, and actually, uh, me and uh, the principal bassoonist, my friend Aaron, uh, we actually ran into him a couple days later at one of the food trucks downtown. Mm, that's his, cool. his name is Dennis. So shout out to Dennis. Hey, Dennis. Who lives in uh, in uh, northwest Arkansas. I didn't get that uh, young woman's name. But, um, yeah, that's what I was doing. And while I was there in Fayetteville, Arkansas, I got to chat with Katie Henriksen, who is the uh, local classical host at KUAF uh, FM. And um, she uh, she talks a lot uh, about like journalism in her work and and what led her to there and uh, how we'll begin today's conversation is um, where her life started after she graduated from school with um, not a classical music degree, but a journalism degree. She went over across the pond uh, over to Europe that we've been kind of crapping on for we haven't but anyway she <laughs> she went over to Europe and um and began her life so so this is her story the first thing I did is I went overseas and I lived in Germany for oh, about wow. five months um, Lo lots of classical music there yeah yeah <laughs> that was beautiful and wonderful and I kind of just did it on a whim because I didn't I didn't have I didn't have enough money to like do the like study overseas when I was in college sure it's too expensive so I, I had actually family friends in Berlin, so I just did my own kind of study abroad where I just went over there for five months and I lived with my friends and experienced the culture there in Berlin, and that was amazing. Um, and then after that... Did that, 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 that experience um, sort of shape, um, you know, the, the way you thought about music or the way you thought about journalism in a, in a really poignant or interesting way? You know, I didn't... I mean, most of, most of my time spent in Berlin was honestly like deeply connecting with that city. Um, I was there in, in, in um, 
2003. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I lived in Kreuzberg and I took an intensive language study. So my family heritage is German and I always loved the German language. So I actually studied that in school, but it had been a long time since I'd actually used it for anything. And then of course you're, you don't really truly learn a language until you're immersed in it. Right. So I, I, I spent a lot of time just walking the streets and like absorbing all, I mean, Berlin's fascinating and in, in, in the rich, dense history of the city. And you can still see so many remnants of World War II in the streets of the city. And then yeah. it was also a city that that was transformed, obviously, by World War II and post-war, post-World War II, where it was divided. And then the wall came down. And so when I was there in 2003, even though the wall had been down for a while, it was the middle of the city was actually just kind of re-blossoming. And, and, mm. and so there was like this great resurgence of arts and this like people were this energy because because everyone was like, this is a place to be now because for a long time, the whole city was cut in half. And so they had an opportunity to really like come together and build this new city for the arts, I guess, is what I would call it. OK. Um, so, so that was great. But it, it, I mean, I didn't I, I think I, I like I would go to concerts, but I was also like totally trying to be like not pay for anything <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I was like because I was like a very 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 broke um just out of school and I didn't I wasn't able to work while I was there right so I just basically like kind of scrape in and and do language classes and like meet a lot of really interesting people and walk the streets so that's really what and and just like having the opportunity to just like the, to get the cultural experience yes of, of the whole exactly. thing exactly and then and then I and then I ended up um back in Fayetteville and I, I met someone that I ended up marrying and we decided we wanted to go to New York City. That's like we're like we're going to New York City. We're going to be there. We're going to live in that city because we want to be there, experience it. So that's what we did. We moved to New York City. And I actually the first job I had in New York City was working at the Strand Bookstore. And then and then after that, I worked in the book publishing industry, actually. I worked at a small literary press called Overlook Press. I worked at a reference publisher um, the whole time I was there, I was like freelancing in the evenings and on the weekends. So, and I actually did a lot of the avenue that I saw for covering the arts was actually more like kind of in the like indie rock music vein. Yeah. So there was this uh, this music this music magazine out of Chicago called Venus Zine, and they had people like Cat Power and Joanna Newsom on the cover. And I connected with them because I'd done a lot of studies with gender and music, and that was a particular interest of mine. And so I was I was definitely keen on exploring and writing about women music, musicians. So that that magazine was a great fit. And then there's this great alternative newspaper monthly out of Brooklyn called the Brooklyn Rail, and I started writing for them. Um, but all the while I was writing all these things, and they basically like paid. Well, actually, both those, both those, they didn't even pay anything for an article. It was like, I get to talk to these amazing musicians and go into these concerts and experience them, and then write about them. But I, and I was just going to experience, so it wasn't, it wasn't anything where I could like actually like pay my rent or anything. So I had to mm-hmm. work an office job during the day to do that. So where, at, at what point did you transition into radio? <laughs> well, that's 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 interesting to you because. Because I, I actually, in school, I was a journalism uh, student, but I, I, I was at print editorial. So I was not a broadcast journalism student. 
Um, and, and even though I grew up with a family who listened to NPR like daily, like yeah. every morning, I remember like the theme song to Morning Edition, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> that kind of thing when <laughs> oh, I'm like yeah. nine years old. Um, but I, I, I did print editorial, but then I was back in Arkansas and I was working at the University of Arkansas Press, actually. Um, and always with this idea, I was still freelancing and doing things um, so I could keep up doing my journalism that I loved. And then at some point, um, the the KUIF, the NPR station here at Fayette, in Fayetteville, the the person who had been there forever for classical music, her name's PJ Rabowski, she decided to retire. She was ready to retire. And so that's when I was like, okay, I need to, I, I, I'd had regular conversations with KYF before, but nothing mm-hmm. had really opened up to where it really fit with what I was doing. But once PJ stepped down, I was like, okay, this is my opportunity to really get into a day job in radio journalism and with classical music. So it was like kind of one of those stars align kind of moments, you know, one of those cheesy moments. Yeah, I, I think there's actually a lot of beauty in that because you talked about initially switching over from music to journalism because it was, you know, the more practical route and, you know, the practicality you found in that journalism was tied back to classical music at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, it was it, it was pretty amazing. And then it was also really fu- it was funny to you because depending on who knew me from what context, some people were really surprised. They were like, what do you know about classical music? You're hosting a classical music program because all I knew was like about my indie rock coverage, you know. And then other people who knew me from a long time ago and knew that I, I grew up performing and singing and that classical music was like in my blood because of my grandfather. Yeah. They were like, oh, this is like the perfect fit. <laughs> it's really funny. That's that's and you know that's interesting too, uh, because you know something I've talked uh, with a lot of people about is how surprised they are um, when when they when they see me how how sort of my my voice and my physical uh, appearance you know don't necessarily meet a lot of people's expectations and and it's interesting to hear that people were surprised about you going into um, classical radio based on the other work they knew that that you did is you know it's it's uh it's just interesting how you know so many people have these ties to classical music and how you know those ties are still a surprise to people because of what i i, I don't know what, what what do you think what what do you think that surprise comes from well i i think it kind of it kind of goes back to this idea that 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 classical music is this like rarefied art form that can't be touched by the common masses it's like we we don't have an opportunity i think to to really discuss classical music like we i mean like people talk about you know they they talk about like like the latest beyonce single or lemonade or whatever yeah and, shout and out it's to like beyonce this, <laughs> yeah and it's like they it's like it's like this this it's like a, a a vernacular that everyone can relate to but with classical music it's like it's like people it's it's it is put it's still by societally it's still kind of put away in this in this locked cabinet and so i don't think like i don't think i had a opportunity really like when i was in my my 20s after i'd graduated from school i didn't really have a way to like express my background in classical music and i wasn't it's like in the classical communities that exist um like joining an orchestra or a choir it's like I, I didn't do any of those things in my in my 
late twenties. And, and so like the people that I'd connected to and, and experienced the world with, they, they, they weren't talking about classical music, so I just wouldn't really bring it up, I guess, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That, that's something. Do you, do you think the onus does fall on people like you and me to kind of insert classical music and classical music conversations into the general zeitgeist when, you know, when, whenever we have the opportunity? Absolutely. And it kind of goes back to my gender and music interests because one of the, I did a thesis on uh, gender and rock music criticism. And I looked at the way male rock critics were writing about women musicians. Mm. And and the whole, the whole idea was, it was a content analysis. So I actually took these words and the phrases and everything that they use. and, And the whole idea was like, if we had more women rock critics, writing about women musicians, that everyone's perception of women musicians would change. And I think it's yeah. the same with like, if, if we're like a classical music uh, radio host and journalist, uh, letting people know that, because I do think in the past that, that overall, the way that classical music has been covered in our common culture does kind of put it off into this box, you know? And I think people like you and I have this opportunity to take it outside of that box and and let listeners know that it's that it is an art form for everyone. And that's like a mission that I do every day. And whenever I hear from a listener who like I had, um, I produce these live concert experiences because I want to get people who don't think of themselves as concert goers to come to a concert and experience classical music in a live setting. Yeah. So I had one of those and. And this person had never, he's like in his 30s and he's a hes a sculptor and a poet and all these things. And he wrote me, he was like, that was so moving. I'd never had a community experience like that. And I've never heard live classical music before. Wow. You know? Wow. You know, I almost get misty <laughs> hearing that story <laughs> because when you say, you know, you, you try to make the point that classical music is for everyone. I feel like that's a sentence I've said a kajillion times at this point. Um, and and for a lot of people, you know, the connection is made and 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 and, you know, we create for them an entryway into this world. But still, for for so many people, it just seems like such a mystifying art form. How, how do you how do you demystify classical music in, in your everyday work when you're on the radio, when you're programming? Honestly, I just, well, first of all, I'm just really passionate about the, the selections that, that I pick out. I also, I think because I'm, I'm at a smaller NPR station and I'm not at a full-time classical station, I, I have a lot of freedom to program the way I want to. So mm-hmm. I definitely widen the definition of what classical music can be. And I, I, I program contemporary and then I'll program all the way back to renaissance music and everything in between and I like to show mix it up I also like to maybe take it out of that whole old European white dead white guy realm as much as I can and show show people that it's not all Beethoven and Mozart and Bach which they're all really amazing but but like to show people that classical music is living and alive and flourishing today and, and when people realize and make that connection, um, because I, you know, this, this idea of like classical music, it's like, yeah, yeah. What, what other, what other, like, if you, if you listen to like rock and roll or jazz mm-hmm. 
or the blues. I mean, those are Amer very American musical art forms that have only existed in the starting in the 20th century, really. Right, right. And then you look at something like classical music, which has its earliest dates back <laughs> to like the 1400s. And it's like it, and it's really it can be much more diverse than I think um, classical music as a whole has has shown it to be like the 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 institutions and the and the major players of classical music have not represented the true diversity that 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 we have here. Right, right. So, um, so you mentioned um, artosphere, and I and I want to make sure we touch on that um, before you go. So, um, my my first time to to Northwest um, Arkansas was on an invitation to play um, at this you know at the summer music festival uh, called Artosphere. Would would you mind telling folks what it is and what it does for Northwest Arkansas and and what its purpose is in general? Yeah. So. So Artist Fair uh, is it's it's billed as Arkansas's Art and Nature Festival, and it's run through the Walton Arts Center, which is our performing arts center here in in Fayetteville. And the idea is, and 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 also, so the nature part. Um, if you've never been to Northwest Arkansas, we're in the Ozark Mountains, so we're very we're in this beautiful natural setting yeah, in the very hillside. Beautiful, yeah. We're actually. Like actually, Fayetteville is set in the mountains. We're not in a valley, and there's mountains on the side. We're actually set in in the hills, and they're very old mountains. They're very, very so low lying. Um, but the idea behind Artisphere was to celebrate nature and the arts. So, and then there's the festival orchestra component, which is amazing because then all all these vibrant musicians are coming here to perform. Classical music, um, it's not only a classical music festival, it also features like blues, folk, um, jazz, basically any, uh, basically it's a celebration of the arts overall. So they also have a component with visual artists like um, Patrick Darty. He creates these like huge installations, but they're all made of sticks that are like found in the environment. And, and so they invite artists to do these big installations. Um, they also have... There's right now actually there's this topo map on downtown in Fayetteville and it's a topo map of the uh, stream systems and and the 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 sediments uh, that are underneath the actual concrete that that they that Artisphere had paid for an artist to do and 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 so the, it's like a it's celebrating the arts and nature here in our area. You're talking about this relationship between nature and all of the arts it really breaks down this Artisphere Festival in a way I've never thought about before because when I'm there I am indeed, you know, at the mu ch checking out the um the the Crystal Bridges Museum and um you know I walked through my first uh Frank Lloyd Wright house you know uh, for the first time in in Northwest Arkansas and and yeah the the marriage between the arts um and nature and 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 all of that in in general is just is is so phenomenal and it, it seems like it breaks down again the walls that people think are built around classical music you know it it includes classical music in with these other musical art forms and these other non-musical art forms in a real great way yes absolutely I, I'm always really excited about it and it's funny you mentioned the Frank Lloyd Wright house because it, it, that in Crystal Bridges because um Crystal Bridges actually didn't open until 2011. 
So, so for me growing up in Northwest Arkansas, I had to go a very long ways to experience 20th century art. Um, like now with Crystal Bridges and now there's 21C Museum Hotel and they're opening up the Momentary, which is going to be a contemporary wing of Crystal Bridges. Mm. And it's 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 amazing to have like because I, I used to think that I had to I had to like drive a long way or fly somewhere in order to get that kind of capital C culture type experience. And now yeah. here it is in my own backyard. Yeah, and, and I think you're you're mentioning, you know, having to travel far and wide for their art uh, brings us back uh, to my final question really well. So, you know, for a, a lot of people out there going to a concert hall, you know, if if they don't have to drive hours and hours to have that experience, it may still be an experience they're uncomfortable with considering what do I wear and, you know, when do I applaud and all of that stuff. So, you know, listening to classical music um, on the radio is probably the most comfortable setting for a lot of people. What advice do you have for the person flipping on the uh, the classical music radio station for the for the first time? What should they be thinking about? How can they really get into what they're hearing? Well, honestly, it's it's just you you turn on the radio and you dwell in that experience. I actually have the opportunity. So my program is two hours long and I have a lot of freedom within that two hours to where I really if if I want to play a whole Mahler symphony, I can play a whole Mahler symphony. Yeah. And that's um, an hour or more, right? Yeah. An hour or more. Yeah. Sometimes like 80, 85 minutes long. And and what I invite people to do is, and also I think there's this idea that like people feel like, well, I, I really enjoy when I hear it, but I don't, I don't know how to talk about it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And they don't know how to engage dem- it, basically. Yeah. So, so demystifying it and saying, hey, you don't need to know anything about it at all. Just turn that radio on. And, and and dwell in that music and let it wash over you. Um, that's really at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. And letting and letting yourself have that deep resonance with this music. Um, and, and, and and then then ultimately we're all connecting through through that music. As someone who's, um, you know, had your hands in, in so many different professional fields, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, of course, the way you approach doing your job, you know, creating creating that environment for listeners is uh, unique in its own way. Do, do you have any advice for um, any of our fellow classical hosts uh, around the country as far as making that experience as engaging for the listener as possible? Uh, I guess, I mean, really, honestly, just just never... Don't I don't be condescending. Um, don't don't try to sound really knowledgeable about something. I mean, <laughs> yes, obviously, obviously, you want to have authority because this is right. your subject and this is what you know. But bringing and also not dumbing it down because I've seen the other end of it where people get really gimmicky and people get really like they want to latch on to like some kind of hook where Drake's doing something with classical music or, you know, like, you know, you don't want to, I mean, hybridity and collaboration is amazing, but like there's, there's like a balance between like finding that and not making it look like, look like, um, you're just trying too hard in the other direction to, to connect with other audiences because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what we're doing is, there's this vibrant, diverse, amazing world of classical music and 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 just bringing people into the fold by experiencing listening to it and then providing some context. And I, I also one of the things I love to do 
is have conversations with the, the people who make that possible, um, whether it's like Simona Dinnerstein or Alyssa yeah, Weilerstein. Shout out to her, yeah. Um, ta- talking to them and talking to them in a way where it's not, you're not using words that other people would have. You, like, it's, it's like, I, I don't care if you know what a sonata means or, or, or like a definition of, uh, you know, ta- making it less rarefied and making it so something that, it's what we all experience, and 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 that it's a fabric of our life, and it can be if we l- everyone lets it in. I guess. Well, uh, yeah, and I, I agree, and and I just have to thank you so much for uh, sitting down and talking with me. Uh, in in closing, you know, we you know, so I talk a lot about um, you know race and classical music, and a lot of classical music's black composers. If there's someone uh, listening who wants to discover a piece of classical music written by a woman, what, what are, what's one or, or maybe a, a few um, women in the world of classical music that you would suggest people uh, go discover? Um, well, let's see. Gosh, there's so many. And I know I've, I've had listeners here. And, like, and, 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 and that's the main part of the conversation is that there are so many that people just don't <laughs> know about, you know. Right. I know because I've had I've had like listeners who've said, hey, what about if you do a woman in music uh, episode of Up Note? And I'm, I kind of say, well, that's great. But I, I just put I fold women composers into the show. Into all your the regular time. programming. They don't, right. they don't need their they don't need their own show. Um, I, I actually am really, I really, I, I don't know, maybe you've heard that there's some new, uh, a new recording, but Dabrinka Tabakova, I'm like, she's oh, yeah. a young, young composer, um, and, and e- a cellist, ECM right? put out her, uh, her, for the first album of all works composed by her. I haven't, and that was like in 2014 and I haven't heard anything since then. I would love to have some, some more from her. Um, and then I actually, there's a, there's a really cool recording, um, by, um, Duo Noor, um, do you yeah. know Duo Noor? Yeah, I do actually. The guitar duo, and then they they did a recording where they basically um, commissioned works by women composers because they were upset that they they saw very few women composers being performed at the festivals and all the places they they were playing. So folks like Clarissa Saad, um, then there's 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 like Caroline Shaw who just put out a brand new album. And I can't stop listening to it. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll have so. to check out that uh, Carol and Shaw myself. And, and I'll, I'll throw out, you know, the the late, great Florence Price, who I yes. talk about a lot and is, of course, an Arkansas uh, native. So a really great connection there for people. I have I have a I have a portrait of her in my office, actually, because I one of the Trillium Salon concerts that I produced was a Florence Price chamber concert. And I collaborated with a violinist who actually, she was the first person to ever record Florence Price's second violin concerto. Her name is Erjean Kong. She's a violinist. So we worked together and put together a chamber concert of Florence Price's works. And yeah, she's got such an amazing story. And I'm super thrilled that her archives were discovered and are coming to, they're actually being pieces that were only in her archives sitting in a dusty attic are now right, yeah. being coming to life and people are performing them all over the place. And I love that. And we and, you know, with these performances and these recordings, you know, folks like you and me get to share them with with lots of people. <laughs> 
Absolutely. So, um, so Katie, uh, tell uh, tell the folks how they can um, tune into you, how they can how they can find out um, about everything you've written. What what are what are your what what what's all your what are your deets? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So, so my radio station is KUAF ninety one point three FM in Fayetteville. So, if you want to listen and you're not in Northwest Arkansas, which uh, so many people are not in Northwest Arkansas. Imagine that. Um, if, <laughs> if you want to listen, you can stream the program live at KUAF.com. That's the, the, the website for my radio station. My show's on from 8 to 10 p.m. Central Time, Sunday through Thursday. Um, also on in the mornings on KUAF2, which is our classical digital signal, which you can also stream at KUAF. Dot com and that's from 9 to 11 a.m. in the central time zone Sunday through Thursday I have not gotten around to building my own personal web page which I really need to do but I do have one for my concert series and that's trillium salon series.com you can keep up with me on Twitter I have of note Katie is my Twitter handle and of course, at KUAF.com, people can check out all of the interviews you've done with artists, all the special features and, and all the other great work you're doing. Well, Katie, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Garrett. Katie Henriksen in conversation with Garrett McQueen here on Triloquy. It's so funny that Katie was talking about some of the stuff that's outlined uh, in that article that uh, we began this opus talking about. She, um, I wrote it down. She used the phrase, quote, take it out of the old European dead white guy realm. She's talking, talking about classical music there. Shots fired. And and how she, you know, gets uh, gets folks in, in her community sort of into and in her way is to um, make sure she's fully integrating the programming when it comes you know she does a lot with uh, music by women mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but also people of color and you know th that's my thing too and uh, and she talks about how she's able to do that because she's at a, a smaller uh, NPR affiliate station yeah um, but we have you know, we have those resources and and that power as well to to really um, shape the way people think about classical music through the programming, through more diverse programming. And since I've been here uh, from from my perspective, it's it's only gotten better. And I think, you know, as time goes on, we can do even more to make sure this thing called classical music, especially this thing called classical radio uh, continues into the future, at least till it's time for me to retire. How about my retirement? Well, yours because is coming much closer than mine. That's so. true, but I don't think I'm going to get one. You know, yeah, I don't think I'm going to get one either. But that's why it's important to, um, you know, to, to really engage in, in what you love. I and think that I'm, I think I'll die right around seventy five, and I'm going to have to come in for like another five years to pay everything off after I die. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to die with student debt unless my numbers hit. So whatever. Um, I also wanted to mention that. On uh, my trip down to Fayetteville, Arkansas, I, I can I have to protect my source, but um, I was shown a copy of an unpublished Florence Price um, composition. What what? It's called Ethiopia's Shadow, 
and um, it's still like in her handwriting and oh. and everything. I'll I'll, sh- I'll show you an image. It was not for the record. It was not Katie who uh, <laughs> who let me see it. Um, that's all I'll say. But a lot of incredible things happening down in Northwest Arkansas. Can't wait to um, get back for next year's Artisphere Festival. Um, maybe even sooner. Um, you'll have to you'll have to come down and spend two or three days uh, next year. I think you would enjoy uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas. Do you think they're going to let both of us off at the same? time if we say pretty please i'd like to go down there just to revisit all the shooting locations from sling blade oh because oh, that took place in fayetteville mm-hmm. I'll, I'll need to watch that uh movie i don't think i've ever mm. seen it <laughs> so <laughs> so um next we're gonna talk to a dear friend of mine uh, I'll, I'll go more into that uh in the next opus but we're gonna talk to um Alex, uh, he's a, a bassoonist with the Las Vegas uh, Philharmonic. Um, he crossed the border illegally as a kid. And we're going to talk about that and how his journey led him to being a professional bassoonist. I can't wait. That's yeah. coming up next time on Triloquy. <laughs> 